just a bit odd. <laughs> Downright bizarre. Good morning, girl. Ah, Brenda. Say, have you heard the story of what's come to pass? Oh, I'm not one for gossip. Deep, deep inside the old Lennox place. I heard it's actually a tennis course. Those wanton tramps have clearly abandoned all sense. So please, how long must we endure this disgrace? Dirty laundry ladies, that's what I see. Dirty laundry ladies, as foul as foul can be. Our standards fading, our morals in decline. With such dirty laundry on the line. Here we are, we're episode five. Oh, episode five of Take Me or Leave Me. This is our first series and it's called The Hit Makers. And in this series, we explore the lesser known musicals of some of the biggest names in theatre. So I'm Zoe, I'm your host. And each episode, I'm joined by another lover of musicals of theatre. And this episode, I'm joined by the magnanimous and marvellous Ben Clare. Hello. Hi, hi Zoe. Nice to be with you. That's so exciting. Now, I thought about this. I very much wanted to ask you to do it because I know how much you love theatre, but I, so like I assumed because you like theatre that you might like some musicals, but then I thought, oh, maybe he really hates musicals. But then I thought that might be fun anyway, because I just forced you to listen to a whole load of things that you really disliked. Tell me how you feel about musicals. Tell me about your relationship with them. Well, I, I love musicals. Actually. Oh, good. I had, a rock, I, had, I had a sort of dip. I had a rocky road to loving musicals. I kind of saw some as a teenager and they were probably kind of some of the first big shows I saw other than like Pantos and then kind of like when I was a teenager I was kind of like more into like proper theatre what I what I considered at the time proper as a theatre as a movie oh. as, as an intense <laughs> teenager you know it need, you know people couldn't sing what you know why did they suddenly burst into song and then as I kind of like went into university and came out of that I kind of suddenly went actually musicals are great do you have a musical that you love that just gives us a sort of idea of the sort of musicals you like? Yeah, I suppose Company is probably my favourite musical. It was the oh, first yes. musical I ever saw on Broadway and it just kind of blew me away, oh. really. Was that the, which one was that? Was that the Raoul Esperance one? Yeah, where it was kind of all acting musicians. It was a yeah. uh, production by John Dove. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it was amazing and like incredible. And But then, of course, like the recent... Uh, Marion Elliott production with Rosalie Craig was absolutely amazing. This episode, I'm going to say that a show that I love is it's going to be a classic, and it's going to be Kiss Me Kate. Very good, yeah. Yes, because nothing fills me with more joy than a good backstage musical. That's why I love a chorus line, which I'll stop going on about, but I do love a chorus line. But also, on the other hand, I will also say that nothing is more cringy than a bad backstage story or musical or film the absolutely one, yeah. yeah kiss me kate's a great musical though kiss me kate's a really good musical i think it's got some just really great tunes in it as well that are really memorable I think. really good and as a person who started watching musicals watching hollywood musicals kiss me kate's a good film adaptation of a stage musical as well for you personally what makes a musical successful i think it needs to have some kind of emotional truth in it for me even if it's like bombastically entertaining. I think there has to be a kind of through line to it. I think for a lot of people who maybe see as much 
straight theatre as they see musicals, that's something that's quite integral, is having that thing that you can relate to, so that it doesn't just feel like people bursting into song. Okay, so this episode, we're going to be talking about the British Mr. Producer, Cameron McIntosh. So he's the first producer that we've talked about. And I will also start by saying that Cameron McIntosh has an incredible theatrical career. And like, if one's idea of success is dollar, then Cameron McIntosh is like maybe the most successful person in British theatre ever. Uh, He is estimated to have a personal fortune of $1.28 billion dollars which is insane. Like, he only does theatre shows. He doesn't do anything else. And he's made all that money off theatre. And theatre's not a terribly profitable industry. It's really not. It's really quite incredible. It's so impressive, (laughs) because you're just like, that's, how did you do that? All shows run at a loss. What do you, how did, (laughs) how? I think when you see his success, that's why some people think they could also be a theatre producer. But I, can't stress enough that he is one of a kind it's not like he's one of a kind not everyone is going to produce their version of Les Mis and Phantom like not just Les Mis or not just Phantom but both so those are his longest running hits at 35 years and 34 years respectively which is so long for a show to be on it's absolutely incredible isn't it it's really incredible so he's also produced Mary Poppins Oliver Cats. Uh, he is the first British producer to be inducted into the American Theatre Hall of Fame. So his company owns eight London theatres, which includes the home of the London production of Hamilton, the Victoria Palace, uh, and he also produces that. I think for me, he really captures the business side of theatre. And I think we'll see in this episode that sometimes his love of a show derails his business brain a bit. Like he gets a bit involved it's something that he says about himself a lot lots of people say about him he loves to have opinions on everything but he also can't read music is a bit tone deaf doesn't like he doesn't have any artistic things about his being but he's very like but i know what i want and what i like and somebody said it quite well i think somebody said what he knows is what the average person likes And that's what he prides himself on. I also read that he's very happy as being described as somebody who would do theatre for everyone. He doesn't have any need, maybe like Andrew Lloyd Webber does, or definitely like Stephen Sondheim, who we talked about last episode, to be intellectual. He has no interest in that. So I think that's quite an interesting place to be as well. When you're like, I just want to entertain. (laughs) And I think that's that's such an important thing in theatre. Because yeah. there are so many people, uh, you know, I think like one in five people goes to the theatre every year. So it's not quite as niche as some people make out. And for some people, that thing is going to a musical in London. If that's going to see Mamma Mia, then that's great. Yeah. You know, and because that's your, that's your experience of theatre. Of all the people we've talked about on this podcast, majority of people are going to have seen a Cameron Mackintosh show before they've seen a Sondheim show or even a Trevor Nunn show. I think he's so... You'd be surprised at what he's done. A lot of his musicals are kind of gateways into musical theatre. Yes. For sure, you know. And I think it's no small thing as well that Les Mis and Phantom have been made into films as well because they're such dramatic, big scale things that, you know, fit so naturally into becoming a film. 
and that you know people often want entertainment you know mm. you know it's nice to, it's nice to be challenged and to made to be think different things but you know yeah. if you're going on your one trip to the west end in a year and let's face it it's not cheap mm. uh then you know you want to come away and have a really like yeah you know spectacular amazing experience don't you exactly i'd be wowed and i think that's what he does he loves this epic so we're going to talk about three shows of Cameron Mackintosh's that were destined to run for decades. And they are Moby Dick, exclamation mark, uh, book by Robert Longden, and music and lyrics by Robert Longden, and Harewood K, Martin Gare by Claude Michel Schoenberg and Alain Boubil, and The Witches of Eastwick, music by Dana P. Rowe, and lyrics and book by John Dempsey. Now, I'm not sure if you can be a fan of a producer, but did you know a lot about Cameron Mackintosh before looking into these shows? I suppose, yeah, I hadn't seen any of these three musicals, actually. But what I had seen was things like Les Mis and Phantom, like all the big kind yeah. of obvious ones. Cats, one of my, my least favourite musical. But... Yeah, I saw Cats. I think I said this before, but I see all Cats like five times when I was a kid. I, it seemed to be the only thing my school went to see. Like every year it seemed to be cats. I think that's my memory distorting it, but it that's what it felt like. <laughs> and I think once is enough for cats for me. Yeah, once once is plenty. So yeah, so that was my kind of experience of him. And obviously no you know, knew that he owned theatres and how prolific he'd been. Yeah. And kind of influential, but I didn't kind of realise until kind of looking into things a bit for this podcast that of like how creatively influential he's been in his shows as well. I've worked on various Macintosh shows, so I have seen that firsthand that like he just he's everywhere. When you work on a show, he's at things that you wouldn't expect him to be at. Like we did a photo shoot for Oliver once and he was there and you're like, Why are you do you not have this seems like a small deal compared to other <laughs> stuff? And he was there and he was like literally a hair and makeup person, he was like, Do you wanna do it that maybe you should do this wardrobe person he was like i think we should do this dog people he was like maybe we should have this <laughs> at times obviously it can be a bit like you're just like just sit down like we're fine and he's he's said he's very much okay with people telling him to back off but that's his that's his thing that's how he produces is by knowing what is happening everywhere and not just letting other people run with it it's noticeably very different from a lot of other producers he's like the only producer i've ever met working on a show yeah, he's not just putting up the money and kind of going, there we no. go, you you do it. And I yeah. kind of understand it, though, because I, th I think it kind of, it's driven by the passion, isn't it? And driven by the wanting it to be right yeah. and wanting it to be the best it can possibly be as well. I think so. Whether that proves, whether that proves difficult or... There was a really good document. He did a production of Barnum for Chichester. And they, he does a lot of, I mean, we found it with this... Cameron Mackintosh seems to love making a documentary about the making of a Cameron Mackintosh show. There's so many documentaries about the shows that he's done. And there was one about this production of Barnum that he was putting on. And it was um, Timothy Sheeder was the director. And there's some really good shots of Cameron Mackintosh being like, I think it should be pink. And, it, and Timothy <laughs> Sheeder being like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose it. <laughs> like, someone take him outside. <laughs> Okay, so Cameron McIntosh produced his first West End show at the age of 23. Yeah. So young. So young. <laughs> and all the people in this podcast have done amazing things at super young ages. And it's just really getting on my nerves. 
but it mollifies me that it was a revival of Anything Goes and it only ran for two weeks. But yeah, I was like, if you can't get a revival of Anything Goes to run for longer than two weeks. I know, it's a pretty good show. That's got good things. It's fine. It didn't stop him. He went on to produce various West End shows and UK tours. And Macintosh himself reckons that during his 20s, he produced roughly six to eight shows a year, which is insane. That's a lot, especially as how involved he is. That's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) He must have been so tired. He did that. And then he got to 1981 and he got his first big, big, big break. And he got a phone call from Andrew Lloyd Webber inviting him to collaborate on a new show he had an idea for based on a book of poems. And so started one of the longest running musicals in the world, Cats. So after Cats, there's literally no stopping Cameron Macintosh. He produces Les Mis, then Phantom, then Miss Saigon, one after the other. So he has like four mega hits in a row. That's incredible, isn't it? I who think, does that? Who does that? And if it was me, I'd retire. I'd be like, bye bye. I'm, I'm 45 <laughs> and I'm finished. <laughs> so yeah, Miss Saigon broke the record for the largest advance ticket sales in history. And obviously, like we said, Les Mis, Phantom continued to run. Cats also is in the top five. I think it's in the top five of longest running shows ever, although it's closed uh, oh. on Broadway. But success like that can't last and that brings us very nicely to our first show so in 1993 Macintosh produced Moby Dick sometimes known as Moby Dick the musical Moby Dick a whale of a tale or just Moby exclamation mark which I think must be a really bummer for that bald musician in glasses because you can never have a musical that's called Moby I love a musical with an exclamation mark at the end. <laughs> like, and this one has so Moby Dick the musical has two Moby Dick exclamation mark the musical exclamation mark. Wow! And presumably, if anyone put just one exclamation mark, Cameron would tell them <laughs> off like, and make sure they have the other one. Back up that ladder and paint on that <laughs> other one. Yes. Yeah, so, woke up as a surprise that Moby Dick is a musical adaptation of the Herman Melville novel of the same name. Have you ever read the novel? I haven't, no. I haven't either. I feel, when I was doing this research, I felt like it was something I should do, but also something that I'd grow tired of. (laughs) I think maybe life's life's too short. (laughs) Might get a a bridged audiobook version of it so I can feel like I've... The York Notes. Ah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So the basic plot of the novel is a man and a group of other men go fishing and they're trying to catch a whale that's impossible to catch. It's, it's like the easiest plot I've, I've read so far. And, um, and, the, and the perfect thing to put on stage. Anything at sea is surely a really good, good idea to put on stage. So yeah, the novel is 580 pages long, so that's quite a dumbing down of, of that. But you know, you can find yourself another podcast to listen to to get the better feel for the book. So the musical has just a couple of really small differences set in a British girls boarding school. Of course it is. So the school is at the brink of closure and in a bid to raise funds to keep the school open, the girls, who I should clarify, are all like Centrillion style saucy school girls. I just, it makes <coughs> me want to be sick. Even Sorry, I can't help laughing it. with you just even describing it. It's, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. <laughs> Let alone having to listen to it. Let alone um, having, yeah, well, we've all got that fun to come. So yeah, they put on a musical production of Moby Dick to raise funds for their school. And they asked their headmistress, who is a man in drag, like 
a la Mrs. Doubtfire, to play the role of Captain Ahab. So there's a fun, like, double drag. Bad being a woman being a bad. Yeah, so pretty much it's identical to the book. I'd say. Absolutely, yeah, uncanny. <laughs> I'm sure Herman Melville would not be turning in his grave at all. No, he's bound to be um, like, that's the show, I, that's the book I wanted to write. Absolutely. If I was brave enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so would you, if you had some money to spare, would you put your money into that show just based off the idea? Um, I'm going to say no. Okay, I'm going to say going to be a no. I would also, I will mention it again, but I, there is another Moby Dick musical. You there is more there recent, is. isn't there? Yeah, more recent, literally, really recent, 2019, by Dave Malloy, who I really love. And if you listen to that, you're like, oh, it's not impossible. It's just this weird putting it into Centrinian's thing. Yeah, and does, 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 Dave, does Dave Malloy take it seriously and tries to just recreate the book? Or? Yeah, I, do, I think he's got quite a good balance of taking it seriously and, I mean, it's definitely more serious than comedic. Yeah. But I think he's also very theatrically aware, so it's very like, we're doing it as a play. Like, no one should come to this thinking they're going to be at sea. Because he yeah. did... Uh, Natasha Pierre and the Comet of 1812 as well which is and for is that's War and Peace brilliant. but he only yeah. did one chapter of it which I think is really clever mm. to be like well no, no one can do all of War and Peace ever so let's just do this bit and I, I think Moby Dick has a similar way of it just takes one bit of the story rather than being like because I think Moby Dick as well it goes off for long tangents just about fishing about the technicalities <laughs> of fishing and you're like no one <laughs> No one needs that. There's a line in the musical, like the, this is the jokes all the way through. And one of them is three years at sea and no sign of Dick. It's just a panto. It's a panto. That's what it is. It's like a adult entertainment panto. There are so many Dick jokes. So it's many. It's just, it, I think maybe he saw the book on a shelf and went, <laughs> hang on, Dick. there's a potential lots of Dick jokes. <laughs> but it's also just like so many that by I imagine if you were in an audience by the end you wouldn't even be you'd be like Ugh. the show was kind of sold to people on the idea that this show does for Herman Melville what Rocky Horror Show did for midnight horror movies and I just think that's such a flawed <laughs> analogy because midnight horror movies are campy already yeah. without you having to do anything Herman Melville isn't like <laughs> so Moby Dick actually started its life in 1983 which was quite a long time before it saw its premiere it was originally written by Robert Longdon as an entry for a London jazz festival which wow. uh, was a jazz festival I'd have liked to be at where everyone was like <laughs> doing their trumpets and things like that. and then this happened so he'd never written a musical before but he got his friend Herawood Kay Uh, And they wrote half a dozen songs for like a Moby Dick piss take. And they recruited a cast of out of work actors and dancers and put on the show, which I think is is brilliant. And I think that's where the Moby Dick musical should have maybe finished. But he, but Longdon had bigger plans for his musical. And he just thought, well, this just isn't the year. So I'll leave it. You don't hear much about it again until 1991, when another Robert Longdon project, which is, another jazz musical and this time it's a version of the hunchback of notre dame called full swing and i just (laughs) can't with him anymore (laughs) like 
I like the idea that he's like, this is my niche. This is where I need to be. Classic novels done in like a hilarious Ooh. comedy way. Surprisingly, Full Swing, the Hunchback of Notre Dame musical, didn't work. Um, and he decided, okay, I'm now going to go back to Moby Dick and try that again. So he packed up scripts and demo tapes and he sent them to just six top theatrical producers. Unsolicited, he just sent them off. Cameron McIntosh was in New York and he was going through scripts and he put on the demo tape and he said he found himself tapping my foot and smiling to what he called a pop music with a dramatic edge, which I've listened to Moby Dick (laughs) and that is a description I will argue with till I die because it's... Yeah, (laughs) I mean, it's so so round and you keep going round and round and there's no hard edges to it. There's no hard edges and there's no, like... Pop music in the 90s did not sound like (laughs) After reading the script, he phoned Logden and he said, it's a wild idea and I won't produce it, but I will fund a production at the Old Fire Station, which was a theatre that he co-owned in Oxford. So Macintosh puts up about £45,000 and Logden assembles a cast, a crew. And I think that's quite a lot for an out-of-town fun project. I think that makes me think he was already thinking about bringing it into town. Yeah. I think you don't put that kind of money into something that you're just like, it's only going to run in Oxford for three weeks and then that will be the end of it. Yeah. I think Um, that's quite a big investment, isn't it? it, I think, I mean, it's, I know it's not loads, but yeah, especially for the early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they got a name on name. I say name in inverted commas on board um, to play the headmistress. Uh, and that name was Tony Monopoly. What a <laughs> name. Um, now, I have That's to go on a slight detour to talk about Tony Monopoly because he's amazing and it's not relevant to anything, but I just need everyone to know about him. Also, I'd just like to say I haven't made up a single thing in this story of his life. It will sound as if I have, but I haven't. He was born in Australia and his first performing job was singing on the radio show Kangaroos on Parade when he was nine. Um, and then we take a sharp left and he joined a Carmelite order of monks when he was 16. Of course. Stayed a monk until he was 21, uh, which I think in monk years isn't long. No, he didn't give it a good enough try. That's like two weeks in monk years. So then he was working at Caesar's Palace, Caesar's Palace Luton. I didn't even know Luton had a Caesar's Palace, but (laughs) it did in the late seventies. He auditioned for Opportunity Knocks. And from there, he released an album which got into, which reached 25 in the UK charts. And then what's the next thing an ex-monk with an album in the top 50 does? That's right. He went on to Eurovision. And then he came ninth in Eurovision, which for the UK is pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. uh, In 1977. Then he worked on cruise ships, but he wasn't, he didn't love the cruise ship life. In his words, he said, I had champagne for breakfast, but I hated it which I would argue is probably why it didn't help with the cruise ship life <laughs> if you were having champagne for breakfast. Constantly drunk. Cuts, yeah. um, and then while he was in Panto in Stoke-on-Trent, he was headhunted for Moby Dick. That's a roller coaster. It's so good. And it's total detour. And it's got nothing to do with Cameron Mackintosh, but it was very I, important that I told everyone about it. I pay to see the film of his life or the oh, musical yeah, of his the life. The musical of his life, yes. So talking of Tony Monopoly singing, we're going to have to listen to some of the soundtrack i'm afraid so there is an original london cast recording amazingly Mm -hmm. and it's got 
28 songs. I shudder to think how long this musical was because the, the album is days long. There's also, a lot of it, isn't there? They originally started with six. Six songs for the London Jazz Festival and they got to 28. Yeah. It's, it's 22 songs too many, in <laughs> my opinion. Yes, I'm very sorry, Ben, for having made you listen to any of them. So we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna listen to a pretty bad song. I've, I think I've just chosen a bad one on purpose. This is called "Punish Us," uh, and it's sung by the original London cast of Moby Dick. Mm. On your knees, boys. Let us pray. <laughs> Punish me. enough of that thank you but yeah the whole musical is like that yeah it is pretty much isn't it and also if you look at the there's some photos of the original cast production and it's just so cringe it's like does it look like a sort of high school production at the edinburgh festival no because it looks way more x-rated than that oh dear yeah it's it's really it's like a carry-on film but sort of carry-on films seem like they have a little bit more like decorum about them (laughs) I mean, I think the music is pretty bad. There's no bits that I was like, oh, this is a tune. Normally there's something that I'm like, oh, I quite liked that bit. Yeah. This one, I find it hard to find. It does hurt your ears. Like It does. I mean, I think it's obviously dated really badly, the style that it's done in this sort of weird, like, bawdy... Because they also use the word burlesque to describe it a lot, which is kind of a weird... I'm like, I don't feel like you know what burlesque is. <laughs> yeah, not, not burlesque as we understand it now. No. So I feel like it has dated badly, but I feel like it would have felt like it had dated badly in the 90s. If it was on in the, the 70s, you'd kind of go, yeah. oh, it would be primely in its place somehow. <laughs> yeah, it belonged in that creepy decade of creeps. <laughs> I, mean, I, had a, I had a weird thing like, quite early on in it, but there was a song where the kids were kind of like shouting a bit and I went, oh, it's a little bit like Matilda. And then I was like, no, it's not. No, it's nowhere, it's nowhere near the genius. The genius of Tim Minchin and Dennis Kelly. <laughs> I think that's the thing. When you're listening to these, you really try and find good stuff. So you end up saying things that aren't right. You'll get like, oh, it's, it's a bit like a sort of schoolgirl version of Hamilton. <laughs> I was like, it's not like that at all. And you're like, I know, but <laughs> I'm trying to find something. Yeah, so the Oxford run of Moby Dick, it had a three-week trial run. And Cameron McIntosh describes the first week as pretty dismal. He says, we were dragging people off the streets to paper the house. To me, that's a big old warning sign right there. Yeah. He then says, so after a couple of days of that, he said that lines were forming at the box office. I'd just like everyone to bear in mind that the old fire station in Oxford is at a 150-seater venue. <laughs> No, it's not like lines were forming to, like, the Palladium. Like, yeah. <laughs> lines were forming probably because they were waiting to get in because there was no bar because it was a tiny, tiny theatre. 
Again, you'd think the show would end there, but it doesn't. So nearly every single Cameron Macintosh employee said, leave this show alone. And Cameron Macintosh said, no, <laughs> it has a future. He produced the West End transfer of Moby Dick. Now, I don't know how true this is, but it's reportedly he invested £1.5 million into the transfer of Moby Dick. And I don't know where that money goes. It's baffling that it's that much. I think it may be one of those things that's maybe like grown in mythology. Yeah. Because it just feels like too much money to invest in something like that. That's so much money, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. After after a short after a short run in Oxford where yeah. you had to paper the house and, and with to get no the names, off the street. Yeah. With no names, with no people, like the composers aren't famous. I just I'm not sure how true that is. From the 150-seater old fire station, uh, Moby Dick moved to the 900-seat Piccadilly Theatre. And um, it was a 12-person show that was sung with one upright piano. At the Piccadilly, it now had a cast of 26 and a six-piece wow. band. Wow. And you're like, you're taking too many leaps. It's going too, <laughs> too far. <laughs> too many stages have been missed out. So, I mean, I know that Macintosh wasn't totally unaware of the danger because he said about it, he said, it's one of those shows that's either going to close in six weeks or run for six years. It was one of them. Well, the show opened and the reviews came in and they weren't good. They were awful, like across the board awful. Um, and they, but they were also awfully good to read because this <laughs> is another chapter in my sub-podcast, which is how much I love good theatre criticism. So the Times said, uh, this whale of a yarn drowns in an ocean of pointless mediocrity and was like being sucked into someone's very silly, very private joke. Uh, the Daily Express denounced it as a deliberately amateurish, shambolic and bizarre. But my favourite criticism has to be from the Daily Telegraph, which said it was like a school disco themed night at Yates's Wine Lodge. <laughs> <laughs> Yates's Wine Lodge. Yes, yes. which is ni- a nice 90s reference as well in there. Um, Amazing. It closed after 127 performances, which I think is amazing. I was, I, That's quite a lot. It is. I mean, this is the thing with, with all these shows that we're going to talk about. None of them have uh, crazy low numbers. This is like the lowest he ever has in his entire career. And I think that's because he's a businessman. Like he can sell a show even if it's terrible. But the point is, it's never, it's still not going to re- make back its money. You're still going to have lost financially on it. So all three yeah. of these shows that we talk about, they all lose financially. That's what makes them flopped i also i always think as well that there's tourists in london who don't really know what they're going to see and they just go and see something as well yes i think i think if you have there is a certain amount of if you have enough posters for something it will keep it open for a bit like it's never going to make it super successful but if you see it everywhere you'll get some people going to see it so it has had a very successful amateur theater life it's done all over the place by amateurs that, that weirdly that doesn't surprise me sometimes. it doesn't surprise me either sometimes amateur theatre has no taste and I say that in full knowledge that me and Ben know each other through amateur theatre yeah it's, <laughs> it, it has a lot of qualities of the village hall about it a lot so. um you can see all the all the ladies of the local <laughs> village hall Amsterdam wanting to be like let's do it let's get our boobs out so there is an American version as well which removed all the uh, like sex jokes 
but then I wonder what's left if you remove all those jokes <laughs> about dick what what are you left with because that seems yeah. even more weird it kind of all hinges off the off the dick yeah. jokes doesn't it really so. And, so, and that's been performed in various regional theatres in the US so I mean I think we've made ourselves pretty clear but like now we've gone through the whole Moby Dick story how do we feel about it as a as a show <laughs> Well, I found it. I found a really good quote that Michael Billington said about the original production of The Guardian. Yeah, and he said, uh, "The show represented the latest nail to be driven into the glittering coffin of the West End musical." (laughs) (laughs) There's another thing that about the period that we're talking about. All these Cameron Mackintosh shows is a really dark period in British musical theatre. Like, there's not a lot of good stuff to come out of it. If you look yeah, at like the eighties, the eighties were quite good, weren't they? they yeah. it was a, that, the musicals really thrived in the eighties, and then because maybe the politics was a bit depressing, but then suddenly in the nineties, it kind of yeah. it went a bit off kilter, didn't it? And I mean, I think there's also this argument to be had that the eighties really succeeded with Andrew Lloyd Webber, with Tim Rice, with Cameron McIntosh, you know, being involved in those shows. And then I think there's an argument to be made that we became very heavily reliant on those people and didn't give enough places for other younger composers to come up and be doing what they did in the 80s. Yeah, I think, so it's it, like, co- I think it did coincide with a kind of drop in Arts Council funding and yeah, kind yeah. Of investment in the arts because obviously so many kind of people who are going to come yeah. through and kind of write new musicals <coughs> are going to kind of hopefully be coming through prob- probably subsidised theatres yeah. before they get the opportunity to, you know, do a, yeah. a musical that's big enough to be in the West End. Yeah. I mean, that's what you'd hope, but then our history of musical theatres is so overshadowed by two pe- really, really rich public school boys who didn't have to do that, who yeah. just went, we'll do it for ourselves. <laughs> And you're like, not everyone can do that. Stop it. Stop buying all the theatres. Cameron McIntosh produced, he just produced two shows in between Moby Dick and the next show we're going to talk about. Um, and that was a review show of Sondheim songs. That was something that surprised me looking into his background, how many review shows he's done. Like I've never, yeah. I've never actually seen a review show. And so it seems so, there seemed to be a real like love of them in the sort of 90s. There's loads of them. Um, so it's that and a revival of Carousel. So the revival was directed by Nick Heitner and it was incredibly successful. So it transferred from the National to the West End to Broadway to a US tour, like back to back. While that was doing that, back in the UK, Kevin McIntosh was working on his next project and he was on familiar ground because he was back with Claude Michel Schoenberg and Alain Bobil, who are the writers of two of McIntosh's biggest hits, Les Mis and Miss Saigon. So they were working on a musical based loosely on the life of historical figure Martin Guerre. I didn't know anything about Martin Guerre, just to clarify, so I had to do a lot of research. Martin Guerre is a figure in French history who is remembered because he is part of a big case of imposture. And it's a good story. So Martin Guerre disappears from his village in France. Seven years later, he turns up. His wife, sisters and neighbours all believe it to be him. Three years go by in this French village and then people start to think he's an imposter. He's not the real Martin Guerre. Uh, because a soldier comes through the village and tells his father-in-law that the real Martin Guerre lost his leg in a war and this man has two legs. 
two very real fleshy <laughs> legs. So the imposter martingale is put on trial. There are 150 witnesses at his case, which is like, is that just the whole village? Because... <laughs> What? Martingale's wife, though, remains silent. She won't say yes or no to whether it's him. And then drama, this is all real life drama, a man with a wooden leg turns up and he says, I'm the real Martingale. And the imposter is said to be Ardo Dutille. So Dutille maintained that he was innocent right up until his execution. My only knowledge of Martangere, the musical, is a piss-take song about how lousy the lyrics of Martangere, the musical, are. Across the West End, this song was going, and it went, Martangere, he has long hair, he sat on a chair over there. That was the song. <laughs> and it was sung to the tune of the song, Martangere, which we'll listen to <laughs> later. So I genuinely believed the plot was similar to the piss-take tune that I had heard. So it was quite a pleasant surprise to be like, oh, it's actually about something. That's, that's fun. So the musical keeps the basic story, but it adds this idea that, oh, sorry, I should say that um, it's also, there's also a film called The Return of Martin Guerre, which is an 80s French film with Gerard Depardieu in. So the musical also uses that as a sort of starting point. The musical adds these things that aren't in the film and aren't in history, which is that the original Martin Guerre was forced to get married to his wife, by the Catholic Church and he leaves the village after the Catholic Church beats him up because he has failed to consummate his marriage. Then he meets his best friend and Arno is there when Martin Gare appears to die in battle. So he goes to Gare's village to break the news to his family but he's mistaken for Martin Gare and he doesn't tell anyone any different. He becomes Martin Gare and Bertrand who is Gare's wife she knows, but she decides to keep his secret because she's safer with her husband and they fall in love. The end of the musical is a bit different as well as Martin Gare returns and he frees Arno from jail. Uh, Arno is stabbed during his escape by a jealous villager who loves Bertrand, blah, blah, blah. Arno dies, Martin and Bertrand go their separate ways. That's the musical. It's all quite heavy. Um, really, straight, really straightforward plot, isn't it? Yes, super, super straightforward. So easy, so nice so, and concise, yeah. short. The fact that, that two people basically share the same name but aren't the same person, I think, is, makes it really easy to explain to anyone as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what do we think off just the idea? Well, I mean, obviously, Schoenberg and Bubel like a good old bit of French history, don't they? They do, they resonate with um, them. And this isn't quite as successful as Les Mis in its execution, I would say. No. And it's kind of not quite as interesting. But what it is, is very human, I think, as well. And I really liked it. A lot of historians, the reason they find Martin Gare's story, interest, uh, the history of that interesting, is because of the history it involves in terms of women. Why a woman? Why women would lie? Because it's his wife and his sister, so it's just a whole load of women. If it yeah. wasn't, if it was an imposter, why they would lie? What's their reason to lie? Their reason to lie is safety. They're a lot safer if they have, if he's back. And I think that's so interesting, and that's, and that just seems that doesn't seem re- relevant at all in the musical. 
Yeah, she's she's possibly the most interest could be the most interesting character. I think. I think she really could, and I think it just because she just becomes a lot of she's there to be a love interest. I don't know. It's very weird. It feels like it could be a really good character-driven musical, but it becomes a very plot-driven musical. Yeah, which I think is always the problem with like books becoming theatre, whereas actually it's much better in theatre if you concentrate on the relationships between the characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Schoenberg and Boobiel were working on the musical for nearly four years before they approached Macintosh to produce it. And he said he would only work on the show if they made the character of Martin Gare, the real one, more heroic and that they also put greater emphasis was placed on religious intolerance which i just don't get so they did that and then he became more enthusiastic about its potential there's quite a lot of discrepancy of what i from what the research i did about the budget of martin Gare, but it varies between six million dollars and 3.5 million dollars wow but i think the reason behind it was it was the same composers and producer as les mis so i think that made people hugely excited about it um they got on board director declan donnellan who was most is most well known for his work with cheek by jowl the rsc the national he'd previously directed one musical he directed the london revival of sweeney todd but to me as a cynical person it looks very much like you're trying to find a trevor nunn type yeah so that you're you're not doing a musical musical, you're doing a serious musical for... With integrity. With integrity for serious people. So for the cast, the three leads were Juliet Canton as Bertrand, Matt Rawl as Martin Gare, and Ian Glenn as Arnaud. So both Juliet Canton and Matt Rawl were unknown. But Ian Glenn was quite known in sort of theatre. He hadn't done as much film and TV as he's done now. He'd already played quite a lot of Shakespeare leads... Small problem, couldn't sing, had never sung ah. in front of people. So the argument for his casting is that Schoenberg and Boobill shows are so dramatic that what you need is actors first, singers okay. second. But their shows are also described as the closest musical theatre gets to opera. So yeah. I need someone to explain that link. Well, it's, it's like, it, yeah, it's like, it's like casting Russell Crowe in Lame Miss. Fun fact, one of the ensemble was making their West End debut in Martin Gare, oh. and that actor was a 17-year-old, James Corden. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And there's a documentary about the making of Martin Gare, and you can see him in one shot, and he's got a really bad wig on. So the show was epic in all senses of the word. So the cast was made up of 36 performers, and the orchestra was made up of 27 musicians. Wow. Schoenberg and Boobiel write all their shows in French, obviously because they're French. So all the lyrics need to be translated for a British audience. And it still surprises me that nearly every single one of their shows, with the exception of a couple that aren't that well known, have premiered in English-speaking countries. And it just must be such a ball ache to do, because you're like, we've got this show, but now we need to do this whole other level of translating it. So Martin Gare had two English lyricists working with Boobiel, and that was Edward Hardy and Stephen Clark. Neither of them had worked on a large-scale show before. Edward Hardy started the process, and then Stephen Clark finished it off. And I think the skill of turning French lyrics into English lyrics is particularly tricky when you hear Alan Boobiel talk about his lyrics, because they're really full of subtlety, and they're very layered, and I think a lot of that, especially on this show, seems 
lost in translation. So this is a recording of the reworking of Martin Gare, which we'll get onto. So by this time, the lyrics have been reworked by Stephen Clarke. So we're going to listen to two songs. We're going to listen to Martin Gare, sung by Matt Rawl. This is now a running joke by now that I seem to just choose title songs of shows to listen to. <laughs> like I haven't really listened to the whole soundtrack. I've just but listened this one to is like a great one. the classic. I don't give a damn, why stay, what for? I know who I am, a man above the lie that they live A man who love when he's ready to give But I'll come back one day, after ten years away And they'll stop and they'll say Look! 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 It's Martin Gare We need him here, no need to fear, never despair Yes! It's Martin Gare Back home at last, those from the past better beware Stride through the town And we're also going to listen to All I Know, which is sung by Ian Glenn as I know. All that I've seen All the battles, all that I've done Never seen the truth Until that morning and the light of the sun and now I'm here with you Learning how it feels to feel scared Of the feelings I've found In all my life this is the first time I've cared These bloodied hands Their scars of war Have never fought for love Before I go into the lyrics thing again I think the music is very beautiful, but I do also think it sounds so like Les Mis. Yes, I, I actually really love the music of this. I think it's great. I think it's let down by lyrics in a lot of places. Yeah, but it is so like, like, like Les Mis. Like the, I, the I'm Martin Gare song, you just expect him to be like waving a flag on top of the barricade. I think it's one of those things that must be really hard to balance because audiences, if they like Les Mis, they want to come and see something that sounds a bit like Les Mis, but they don't want to just hear Les Mis again, because otherwise they'd just go see Les Mis again. Sure. Basically, the original French title of the song Martin Guerre was Je Reviens... No. <laughs> nope, that was wrong. Je Reviens... That was bad. Anyway, it's staying in. It translates basically as I Will Return. Martin Gare is 17 years old when he sings this, and it's a song about proving all the people in his village wrong and that he'll return a great man. So Edward Hardy sort of does this. So it's the bit where he sings, I'm Martin Gare, is I will return. That's the phrasing of it. Uh. And he felt like it didn't work in English. So he, so, But what he does is he changes the tense of the song. So it makes it, so that Martin Gare is singing as one of the villagers about a time when he's going to return and he's seeing himself return, which is like too many stages within one solo song. What an odd thing to do. It's so strange. So it's like you have this song, which is just someone singing like, I'm going to come back and I'm going to be great. And that makes sense. But then you change it into a song, which is somebody singing their own name as if they're talking in the third person about themselves. Anyway, so Martin Gare opened on July 10th. 1996 at the Prince Edward Theatre and the reviews were quite mixed they weren't bad but they weren't great so Variety said 
The truth is that everyone involved seems caught in the crossfire of a show about identity that has no identity of its own. And that is the question which must first be addressed if this Martin Gare is to come out fighting. The Independent said, All the qualities one looks for in the musical, wit, passion and heady ecstasy, are conspicuously absent from this lugubrious, heavy-going spectacle. Quite harsh. So the reviews and the audience reactions meant that Cameron McIntosh started to have really big concerns about the longevity of the show. And the only way that show would recoup its budget was by running for a lengthy period of time. So while the show was running at the Prince Edward, the creative team began to rewrite the show. So they cut songs, they wrote new ones. They supposedly made the ending ending happier. And I'm I'm still not sure how. how like Does he did he not die? No, he still I mean, dies. So I don't know what oh. the ending was before if they made it happier with the, okay. with the death and the murder of lots of Protestants, which is the end of the show. Then Macintosh closed Martin Gare for four days to tech the new version. And when it reopened, it had another press night. The rewrite had improved the responses. The, crit- the critics were definitely more favourable about it. But the big problems were still there. Ian Glenn still was so the reviews for Ian Glenn were quite strange because everybody across the board was like he can't sing why have they cast this person who can't sing but he's a really good actor and he was nominated for an an Olivier award for it for Martin Gare Um, so I think the the kind of obviously people are willing to go with it he doesn't have that many songs in it he has and they're all duets he doesn't have any solos so I guess you could cover it a certain amount. And and yeah, the other main concern was people still didn't really know what the show was about. Like what's it, its message kind of thing? What's the what's the bigger point the show is making? Martin Gare won Best Musical at the Olivier Awards that year. It was the first Olivier Schoenberg and Bobiel had won. They didn't win for Les Mis and they didn't win for Miss Saigon. Do you know what won the year that Miss Saigon didn't win? Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet, which is a which is a musical that I went to like when I was a teenager, nice. and it's a, a jukebox musical. Yeah, <gasps> it's like how can, it's it's how so can, weird. It's like not have won, and also like so, the year they miss something weird one that I've never heard of that was like you know one of those like for me and my gal type things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it seems quite weird that they won with Martin Gare. Like it seems quite a bit like they were like they still haven't. We can't make them not win again. Here, have yeah. it. Whatever you wrote, have it. Yeah. It seemed to be in a good place to run for a while, but changes kept happening. So there was a cast change in 1997, a year in, and there were more rewrites then. And then it finally closed on the 28th of February, 1998. So it had 675 performances, which is a good amount, but not good enough. If it was at the top end of that budget, it's never been... West End revived. Yeah. It's never had a Broadway run. It's had both UK and USA tours, but both of those have had massive rewrites. So literally every time it's redone, Schoenberg and Mobile turn up and do rewrites. Wow. And from what I found in my research, every kind of five years, I'd say, maybe a bit more, an article appears where Schoenberg and Mobile will talk about the possibility of Martin Gare coming back after they've done some rewrites. Like, they're like, we're still working on it. We're still tweaking it. <laughs> I'm like, never, guys. never finished. Let it go. <laughs> Put down the pencils. Stop it. So they said this in the f- 
interview with Playbill about how they wished the London show had turned out. They said, at the beginning, we wanted a theatre house with a medium capacity, a show with 16 to 17 performers on stage, six to 18 musicians. But we ended up in a huge theatre house. And little by little, this production, which was originally planned as an intimate one, ended up with ballets, big sets and big orchestras. And you can't jump off the train and say, stop. There were so many people and so much money involved in it. So we went all the way through with it and it's not the ideal production. I mean, I liked this a lot more than I thought I was going to like it, I have to say. For me, I, I, find, it, I find it quite entertaining. It's kind of quite a romp. My favourite song in it, in it is Tell Me To Go, which I think is a really beautiful I, song. I like that song as well. Which is in the original, but then it seems like they cut it. <laughs> I think they did. I really liked it. And then I looked at the book the concept is that it's all done in their heads which then i think makes it rubbish because i'm like mm. no that's a conversation they actually need to have whereas the idea is like yeah. you just look at each other and know these things and you're like and i'm like no about no I'm out. we that's don't know nonsense <laughs> so he wasn't deterred by martin Gare though because he was quickly back on the horse with a brand new musical he met the composing team of Dana P. Rowe and John Dempsey when he co-produced their musical The Fix at the Donmar Warehouse in 1997. And as soon as he met them, he wanted to find them their next project because he wanted to produce it. So he handed them a back catalogue of Warner Brothers films and asked them which one appealed to them. And they chose The Witches of Eastwick. So... I already am in a bad place because I don't think you should just choose to do a musical because there's a film of it. I agree. <laughs> I understand it because I, it's very hard to get people into a brand new musical with a brand new story, original everything. I understand. But I also think that you just put such a weight on your back because people are going to come and want to see the film and they won't see the film. The director, Eric Schaefer, says he thinks the great thing about the musical Witches of Eastwick is that it's 30% the book, 30% the film, and 30% original material. I would say that it's maybe like 70% the film, 30% original material. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how much John Updike is in there. Okay, so Witches is set in the fictional Rhode Island town of Eastwick. And it's a beautiful town where gossip is power and no one is more powerful than self-appointed First Lady of Eastwick, Felicia. Great name. Uh, but three women feel like outsiders compared to the perfect suburban families. And they are Alex, Jane and Suki. And they all hang out with each other to just complain and drink martinis. And one night they see Alex's son, Michael, and his girlfriend, Jenny, who also happens to be the daughter of Felicia. And they're so in love. And this makes the women want to talk about their ideal man. And unknowingly, they conjure the mysterious Daryl Van Horn. So in turn, Daryl seduces Alex, Jane and Suki and they're initially jealous of each other. But when they realise they have summoned him uh, with their powers, they agree to share him and they become more aware of the powers that they have. And this includes being able to curse Felicia and anything that they throw into this cookie jar that Daryl gives them, Felicia will end up throwing up. So also they can fly. That's the other. That's the end of Act One. Oh, yeah. So Felicia at the beginning of Act Two can't deal with the curse because she keeps throwing stuff up like dollars and spiders and cherry pits and all this. And she tells her husband he has to do something. So he does and he kills her <laughs> by hitting her around the head with a frying pan. But it's okay because he dies as well because Felicia, as she's dying, puts his tie into the waste disposal unit and turns it on. So there's a nice little like, double... Double, double murder 
thing happening in the beginning of that too. So the witches find this out. They tell Daryl he's gone too far and that they no longer want anything to do with him. He gets very angry, swears revenge, and he seduces the now orphaned Jenny and he tricks her into marrying him. But it's fine because the witches, they stop the wedding. They use a voodoo doll to send Daryl back to hell. And as he goes, the church explodes. And that's the end of the show. Ta-da! Ta-da! And can you imagine when you were the set designer and you were like, and then the sh- church does who? What now? And did you see it? Did you, did, have you seen it happen? Yes! They did it really well. Really well. Bob yeah. Crowley, he's a very clever, clever man. He's a very clever um, man. Although there was one bit in that, again... I think Cameron McIntosh just loves making documentaries about his own shows. The documentaries are great. There's another documentary and Bob Crowley goes in it. He's like, designing costumes takes about four weeks of the rehearsal process. And that was me going, I'm sorry. It takes what? Sorry. What? (laughs) (laughs) No, it doesn't. Okay. So what do we think? Just off plot. I can imagine it being like a great, like a great kind of hen night out. Do you know what I mean? I can imagine. Yeah you know really good kind of coach party musical it's kind of fun yeah but it, it also has it does have these slightly problematic things about it i would say my feeling about it is i feel like there's such strong potential there like they say it in the documentary the writers are like you've got these three great female roles and i'm like well no you have the potential to have three great female roles but they do get sort of lumped they are like constantly talked about these three they come as a set they can't ever be people on their own and I think they try they each have their own song but I don't think that's enough they each also have a sort of certain a characteristic don't they yes but but it doesn't quite eat there's not really enough time and the problem is because Van Horn is such a a ridiculously entertaining character all your attention kind of goes to him yeah and and it was and it was Lovejoy playing him in yeah. so and the, I think the problem again famous. is that he gets the best songs as well like yeah. there's the the they write some really nice trios for the three leading ladies so make him mine is one and then they have the final number of the show what's it called inside me look at me no <laughs> none of those look at me that was what it was called um but yeah he's got all the like big numbers so it still becomes this thing where it's very much like we're all just waiting for him to come back, which is sort of, yeah, like yeah. you said, puts you in a weird place because you're like, because he's, he's awful. Like, well, yeah, he's the devil. He's like <laughs> the worst person alive. And you're like, but he seems fun. Like Martin Gare, which is, had a very big budget. It was around four million pounds. There's some other similarities, but obviously they're quite opposite ends of the spectrum. Martin Gare was this like neutral, rustic, countryside type of show yeah. and witches is like this big brassy colorful jazzy number so all the creatives describe witches of eastwick in the same kind of way they all wanted to go back to the classic musical comedies of like the late 50s that's what they were yeah. trying to do um it was going to be like a razzmatazz kind of spectacle big show so originally it was announced to the press that Michael Crawford would be returning to the stage after creating the role of Phantom in the role of Daryl Van Horn. Wow, and I mean, right. it's a choice. It's, it's, a, it's a bold choice. Interesting. <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> so, but he left the project sort of as quickly as he'd been announced and then he was replaced by Ian McShane, 
who is most famous for his role on Lovejoy. He's also in Deadwood for the for as a reference of those for those of you who don't know Lovejoy. And he was also in the film Sexy Beast, which I forgot. Oh, which is an amazing film. Such a good film. He's brilliant. Uh, he had never been on. He hadn't been on stage since he graduated RADA, which was in the sixties. <laughs> so it's quite a like. He's a very good actor, but I yes. still feel like stage is a thing you have to kind of keep practicing. Like you don't. It's also wonderful if you can watch if you watch clips of it because his dancing is oh, just, just something special. Literally like <laughs> drunk drunk uncle at a wedding. That's what Pretty he's much. doing. Yeah. Um, so, also, like our other Ian of Martin Gare, Ian Glenn, he wasn't a trained singer either. No, but really? I think, what? yeah, what? Huh? <laughs> what? You could have fooled me. Um, <laughs> but I do think, obviously, this role is a lot more suited to that. Like, you could Rex yeah. Harrison talk your way through all of these songs. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's kind of fine. He gets away with it. The casting of the Three Witches was pretty straightforward as well. Uh, Joanna Riding was cast as Jane, and Maria Friedman was cast as Suki. And both of those people had had really impressive West End roles um, previously, have gone on to have amazing musical theatre careers. Yeah, they're both incredible, After, aren't they? Uh, Alex was going to be played by an American actress, Lucy Arnaz, who would be making her West End debut. So she'd previously appeared on Broadway, but she was probably best well known in America as being the daughter of Lucille Ball from I Love Lucy. So I think that might be maybe some of the reason why she came to the UK because it seems such a weird choice. Yeah. But I think maybe no one knows who she is in the UK. It was like basically casting yeah, it's odd, isn't it? So I think maybe it was just like that appeal of doing something where you're, you're just going to be judged for you. Yeah. Rather in c- comparison to your mum. So the director, Eric Schaefer, would also be making his UK debut. So he was best known as the co-founder and artistic director of the Signature Theatre in Virginia. So Macintosh met Schaefer when the Rowan Dempsey musical The Fix was on there. Now, the Signature Theatre seats roughly 275 people. And it's best known for putting on large scale musicals and making them work for a black box theatre. So I, for me, he's a bit of a weird choice because yeah. it's kind of the antithesis of what everybody wanted witches to be. Exactly. Yeah, it's a very odd choice. Like he did like a number of like Sondheim musicals and things. Yeah, he? so he did yeah. like all those sort of things and just brought them right, right down, had as fewer people do them as possible to make them work for this tiny theatre. So it seems very strange to be like, you're the guy to do this huge golden age of musicals musical. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to do it a bit differently with music this time. We're going to listen to uh, an original song called Who's the Man, which is sung by Ian McShane as Daryl Van Horn. The song who had control since this whole thing began. Who wears the pants? Who holds the key? More to the point, who's got a big one swinging down at his knee? Metaphorically, who gets it done when no one else can, I ask ya? Who's the man? What makes a king defines the boss. A family crest, a hairy chest, and testes two feet across. And in the bed, whoa, snap, crackle pop. Sure, times have changed, but by and large, that's that. 
And yeah. now we're gonna <laughs> that's that. And now we're gonna listen to the song that replaced it. So it would when it was reworked, this all happened in London and we'll talk about it in more detail. But when it was reworked, that song was cut and it was replaced by this song, which is called The Glory of Me. And this is sung not by Ian McShane, but by his replacement Clark. Once you hear Clark Peters, who can very obviously sing, compared with Ian McShane, you're like, oh, oh, okay, I can really hear that Ian McShane can't sing now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Clark Peters is just oh, got such a wonderful voice. Such a good he? voice. Um, and so much, has so much character in his voice yeah, as well. I don't know. You really think he's the devil like, in that song for me. Yeah. I really like the score of Witches of Eastwick. Definitely my favourites are like the big numbers, Dirty Laundry, Eastwick Nose, Dance with the Devil. All the, all the big like whole yeah. company numbers I think are really good. And I'm very surprised that this team hasn't done something else. Yeah, me too, actually. So their musical The Fix is, is really good. For me, they're very similar to Styles and Drew. Like, they have a lot of that kind of quality about, like, an American version of them. I mean, they have, sorry, they have written stuff together again, but nothing at all has got to the level of... Witches of Eastwick is almost, like, their most successful musical. What do you think of the music? I, re- I, I think the music's really fun, and it really... I, you would just have a good night out watching this show, wouldn't you? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's catchy, and it's so catchy as well. We've got some good... Dick jokes again. We've gone from Moby Dick to this, so we've still got some good dick jokes. So all the way through. I, I, I Are there any dick jokes that. in Martin Gare, or did we miss those? Uh, I think we <laughs> missed those. Missed I, mean, I think maybe they cut them during preview. The Witches of Eastwick opened on the 18th of July 2000 at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, which is a barn of a theatre. Like huge, so huge. So the reviews were mixed. Mainly, the critics praised the score and the performances of the three leading ladies. They also really uh, praised the Rosemary Ash, who is the supporting role of Felicia. Uh, and she was actually nominated for an Olivier as well for that role. Oh. People were less impressed with Ian McShane. And surprisingly, for a show where three people fly above the audience at the end of yeah. that one, critics were disappointed that this Cameron McIntosh had show had no helicopters or barricades or like they were like it wasn't an epic and it's so weird to me i'm like what they flew across the audience <laughs> like that's why like, I'm like they actually full-on flew from the stage to to out above yeah. the stalls <laughs> about seven about 17 or 18 years before harry potter 
Yeah. <laughs> like, and I'm come like, on. Guys, what, what, what more technology do you want? They were like, yeah, but it didn't, the set didn't revolve and there was no... I mean... And that's what I was thinking as well, reading the re- reviews. Reviews never talk about producers. No, But he's no. like, in every single review, his name is there. You would think, off the back of that, that if witches just managed to hang on for like two to three years, they'd be home and dry. But if it did that, it wouldn't be included in this podcast. So that was <laughs> irrelevant, <laughs> does it, really. Does it, does it not entirely and happily? It doesn't. It oh. still has some drama to come. So the decision was taken to rework Witches of Eastwick to improve the critics' responses. So much like the team did with Martin Gare, uh, they were going to rework it while it was still running. But this time they were going to go one step further and they were not only going to rework it, they were going to relocate. So they were going to move the whole entire show to the Prince Edward Theatre. Now, you can't just move a set. You can't move a lighting rig. The cost of a relocation is painful. So you think you've already spent that £4 million budget you're going to have added Let's to that. Spend by, <laughs> Let's spend some more. Let's spend some more money. So as it moved, it lost Ian McShane. Supposedly it was due to illness. He had shingles. I like to think that his agent was just a bit canny and got him out of his year contract as they moved. Because like, who wants to stay in a show where people think that like you're the weak link? So when they did that cast change, the show was also due to be re-reviewed. So they were going to have right, a whole new okay. press night and review the reworked show with the new cast. So all that work goes into it. And unlike Martin Gare, which the reviews really improved, the reviews were pretty much the same, if maybe a little bit worse for which oh Clark Peters got really good reviews, much better than Ian McShane did. But him being so much better highlighted how flawed the three female leads were Ah. in the writing. So the Guardian said, the three witches, 30-something women galvanised by sex with Satan, fare less interestingly than the Daryl Van Horn character. Alex, Jane and Suki are like the Scarecrow, the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion. The writers allow them one characteristic each. Like their Oz counterparts, they finally learn in a ghastly closing number that everything I needed was there inside of me. Um, I think it's just what you said it's like especially if you have somebody who's even better at being charismatic and an anti-hero that's what he becomes he doesn't just become this villain of the piece he becomes like the one you're sort of rooting for then the problems with the other characters become even bigger so yeah it closed on the 27th of October 2001 and it had a 15 month run not bad but not bad but again not close enough at all to recoup so it's had a uk tour it's had various european productions it has had an american premiere at original director eric schaefer's 275 seater theater really yes so that's the only american production of it is there okay so what do we think of the witches of eastwick in general I think you go and see it and have a really good night out, but not think too deeply. <laughs> I think that's the thing. And I think it's interesting to think as well, like how much those shows that run for a very long time actually rely on people coming back to see them again. Yeah. And Witches of Eastwick is never a show that you're going to have to see again. That's the thing. You're never going to have to be like, you know, I don't think I quite got all of that. I need to go and see. Yeah. It's like, here's the story and that's it. There we yeah, go. and you get it. Do you have a favourite, least successful Cameron Macintosh show? And I, It's allowed to be Moby Dick, but I 
would advise you to see a doctor if that was the case <laughs> for you. Yes. No, I still have all my marbles intact. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to pick Martin Gare, mainly for its music. I think, yes. that I think those two, I think their music is incredible. I think I'm going to go with Witches of Eastwick. Yeah, I really enjoy it. And I really enjoy those group numbers. And yeah, I've said it before. I, I'm a fan of a, a dance musical. And Martin Gare is definitely not that. No, there's a there lot is of, a dance uh, in Martin there's Gare. A of, there's a lot of laboured choreography in Martin Gare. There's a Gare lot of stamping. <laughs> that was the choreography of Martin Gare. Yeah, and, and not, in like a, a, not, in a, not in a cool Hofest Schechter way, but in no. a very laboured way. Okay, well, thank you so much for being my guest on Take Me or Leave Me. Forgot my, the name of my own podcast then. It's been such a pleasure. It was really enjoyable. Our next episode is the last episode of this series, The Hitmakers. Oh. Uh, we're going to be talking about the work of composing team Candor and M. Um, our next series is going to be on musicals that are based on films. So do send me a message if you have a musical, a flop musical, I'd like to say, not just any, not good musicals. I'm not interested in those. Um, <laughs> if you'd like us to talk about that. Um, and I'm going to play us out, Ben, with a song from Dave Malloy's Moby Dick. So that the story of Moby Dick isn't ruined for everyone. <laughs>